and welcome everyone. We're so excited to have you join us again. OptimizeRx is honored to continue facilitating this series of conversations fostering industry collaboration to help stop the spread of coronavirus. So here's, um, here are a few reminders. You can submit your questions at webinars at OptimizeRx.com and we will be happy to direct your questions to the appropriate person on our panel. And now let's just get started with learning together frontline HCP communication during COVID-19. Our panelists today are Rusty France, President and CEO of NextGen, Dr. Phil Febble, Chief Medical Officer and Senior Vice President of Illumina, and OptimizeRx CEO, Will Febble. Our moderator today is Rebecca Love, Vice President of Customer Strategy and Engagement at OptimizeRx. Rebecca, take it away. Thank you, Bera, and thank you all for taking the time today to join us. As we know that this epidemic keeps expanding, the information of what we know and do not know seem to change on a daily basis. We hope that these educational webinars will provide insight and knowledge to help you transform the future of healthcare as we go forward. Dr. Febo, I think we would like to start with you. Getting a general understanding of understanding COVID-19 as it speaks to both the clinical and the genomic world would be a great place for us to start. Sure, and thank you, Rebecca. It's great to participate today. Uh, it's kind of a, 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 the timing's particularly poignant in that uh, today we're going to surpass 500,000 confirmed cases of, of COVID-19. The Johns Hopkins site has us at 492,000. And it's very likely that uh, Italy may surpass uh, China as far as total number of cases. So obviously this is a pandemic and something we're all, it's front of mind and affecting all of us. And, you know, lately I've been thinking about how much this is really making global health personal in that, uh, you know, within three months of a, a outbreak of respiratory virus, uh, respiratory illness in Wuhan uh, around an animal market, uh, many of us are, are now in our homes sheltering in place and, and really worried about uh, our loved ones. So, let me just briefly go through and just kind of get us uh, kind of a, a background and, and get us to where we are now. And this is evolving very rapidly uh, with a lot of uh, literature being published. So it was, uh, China saw this outbreak of a respiratory disease. Um, when outbreaks like that occur, um, you need to get samples, you need to do um, some uh, unbiased analysis. In this case, they performed what's called shotgun sequencing, which is where you just sequence all the nucleic acids in the sample. You see a lot of host, a lot of the human sequences, but then you find other sequences that shouldn't be there and, and, and it was very quickly identified as a coronavirus. Coronaviruses are part of our environment. They're endemic to many animals and they, called, they did cause SARS and MERS uh, years ago. But this was a this was a novel coronavirus. It hadn't been seen before, and and it is remarkable that in today's day and age, and I think a lot of the discussion will be today is how we're in a manifestly different place with this that we were as far as digital empowerment, remote uh, care, um, with sequencing within uh, the the China alerted the World Health Organization on December thirty first about this uh, novel coronavirus. On, uh, on January 20th, the New England Journal published the full genomic sequence of the virus. Um, and, and that allows diagnostic companies to start creating tests that are PCR-based, point of care, you know, quick, easy um, to disseminate. Um, it also lets therapeutic companies look at that and compare it to, to prior. So 
let's talk about this virus a little bit. So this virus is similar to prior coronaviruses. If you, if you map the phylogeny, it probably came from a, a, a coronavirus that is in bats. It's most similar there. But we've seen a mutation in the protein that binds to the host cell. And that's very common when one of these viruses that is in a endemic to, a, to an animal species mutates the receptor and it switched species. So it jumps into the human. And that's what happened here. That's what happened with SARS. That's what happened with MERS. And, you know, probably that's what happened with influenza year ago, years ago too. And this will continue to happen. So this is something that we have to be comfortable, uh, understand and know how to uh, react to. So it switched to humans. And obviously, um, you know, as we saw it evolve in China and as we've spread, it really does underscore how global of a community we are. You know, <laughs> immediately it was already outside of China, and and now we see the impact of of the spread in different in different countries. We also see how different health systems have different uh, abilities to respond to this, and, and so it's quite striking that Taiwan, 81 miles from mainland China, the highest airport has the most number of flights to and from Taiwan from mainland China, you would imagine they would have blown up. They were able to identify the any potential risk uh, patients coming, uh, people coming in. They did contact tra tracing when they got positive tests and they really suppressed any, uh, any epidemic outbreak within Taiwan. That was partly because they were in, the, they, they suffered through the first SARS and they were ready. Um, and you see all, yeah. What do you mean by contact tracing? Could you just explain to the audience what, how is that different than what we're doing currently and in the U.S. possibly, or what did they do in Taiwan that's a little different than we're currently doing? Yeah, so contact tracing is where you, you really do a deep interview with the person who's tested positive and you follow through everybody they came into contact. You, you, you track their path and you pull in everybody and you, and you do a lot of testing of those people and you ask them to self-quarantine. So it's a very proactive um, there's other areas like right where we're doing in California right now is suppression where you say everybody shelter in place. We want to decrease transmission. Um, but we ha and you, we've done some contact track tracing, but we haven't done as much and, and we can get into what's the what's the right approach there. Let me just kind of finish up on, so now it's global. And what have we learned about this disease alert? So we know the virus, we know it's a coronavirus, we know where it came from. We do, it does mutate about one to two mutations every month is the rate of evolution. And that helps us track it. So with, with sequencing now, we can track exactly how this is spreading into Italy, into Iran, into, um, into, into South Korea, and into the United States interesting like in the state of washington based on sequence and we know the first introduction was at the nursing home from china but we also know that they had introductions from europe as well as from iran so they have three different strains in, in washington at least three different strains at washington and again we're a global community so we see this coming from everywhere it's been we're still trying to fully understand the disease so we do know a couple things one the, this virus can cause uh, many people uh, can get infected and be asymptomatic, whether that's 15%, 30%, it's difficult to tell. The New England Journal report yesterday that talked about children, it was about 15% that were asymptomatic. In adults, it may be a little bit higher. The common symptoms are a cough, uh, fever, uh, nasal congestion, um, and, and then there's a ho host of others, including just systemic 
chills, uh, some nausea um, potential, um, and, and a whole list. The, the pace is we think it's about five days, uh, four to five days incubation period from exposure to when someone has symptoms. And then about uh, five to seven days after that, the symptoms evolve. And that's where someone either kind of resolves as their immune system ramps up uh, antibodies against the virus uh, and they go into recovery and decrease the viral titer. And then there's that percentage of patients that don't mount a significant response and really get into significant trouble. And the, the switch seems to be whether when the virus stays nasopharyngeal with some systemic viremia, those patients, they don't feel well, but they don't end up in the hospital. When it gets into the lungs and causes a pneumonia, that's when it gets uh, really dangerous. And, and, and we do see that there's a strong age dependency to that. That's very clear. So if you're 60 and above, uh, the rate of it going into the lungs is much higher, the rate of hospitalizations higher, and the, the fatality rate is much higher. Um, in some populations, we're seeing fatalities rate above the age of 80 in the 17 to 20% range. So this is extremely dangerous. As you get younger, the proportion of patients hospitalized decreases and the fatality rate decreases, but it's not non-existent. Um, I used to be able to say that there was no fatalities under the age of 19. Uh, the New England Journal paper from yesterday, there was a 10-month-old, again, other complicating medical conditions, but a 10-year-old did a 10-month-old did pass away due to, to COVID-19 complications. So anybody can be affected, um, although it's a smaller percentage the younger you are. Um, and one striking uh, element that I that I also seen on a recent report that came out yesterday is how long patients have the viremia or have virus active in their in their nasopharynx. And I think this is a really important message because it really helps us understand once someone is positive, how do we, how long do they have to quarantine? How long is it safe before it's safe for them uh, to go out? A paper from yesterday showed that there is significant viral shedding from the, from the epithelium, nasopharyngeal epithelium for 20 days uh, on average uh, after symptoms begin. That's a little longer than we see with many viruses where the body clears it and, and it moves on and, and it has to be taken into account as we think about how to get back to normalcy. But what we're seeing now is uh, we're, we're ramping up how much um, testing. We've had a challenge in the United States with testing. Other places have less uh, of a challenge. Uh, that had to do with many reasons. I, I don't know, if, I don't think we should unpack that, but we will see testing capacity go up. We're doing more sequencing, so we are seeing the evolution of this. And what I think is, you know, there's two, two parts that we're doing now. We're doing the diagnostic testing. That's really to understand who has the disease. Uh, it's a yes, no answer. And we'll see uh, the United States kind of move through uh, our challenges, I would anticipate over the next two to three weeks based on what, you know, LabCorp is doing, Quest is doing, and the companies such as Roche, Thermo, Hologic, they're, they're really gearing up their capacity. So I think we'll get past this uh, crunch that we're facing right now in diagnostics. We also have to make sure we're doing enough surveillance and that's the actual sequencing of the virus to track the trends, see the strains, make sure it's not evolving away from the PCR test. So if you mutate where the PCR is trying to de uh, detect, the tests don't work as well. And also, obviously, we really have to think about therapeutics. So there's a lot of activity on therapeutics. 
based on the sequence, we know that the protease of coronavirus is very similar to SARS. So some of the antiviral medications that have been shown to work for SARS may be here, and those, those studies are underway. We've heard about other potential repurposing drugs, like we hear with you know azithromycin together with hydroxychloroquine. And we also know that there's some very interesting antibody-based te uh, therapies coming along from Regeneron and other companies that are expert in that. And there are some early clinical trials showing that if you use the antibodies from serum from recovering people, you can neutralize antibodies. Finally, we all want a vaccine. And there's a lot of talk about getting to an effective vaccine. And you know, we were talking a little bit uh, in preparation for this. I would say I hear a lot of different opinions. I'm not an expert in vaccine therapy so I and development, so I don't have a personal opinion. I hear everything from we're at a new place, we have new technologies, we'll get a vaccine earlier than we have ever been, six to 12 months. I, I have to say that's more of the minority that I hear. Mostly I hear say, you know, we will develop a vaccine, but it's going to take 12 to 18 months. I hope it's the former. I hear more of the latter. And why don't I uh, stop there and, and, and turn it back over to you? No, thank you, Dr. Febo. And I, I think one question that still sticks in my mind is the infectious rate. Um, I, I think there's a lot of miscommunication. People say, no, this is just the flu. If you could just speak quickly to that point as well. And so then we can talk about how people should be viewing this. Yeah, so it's been, we've been getting such little snapshots of windows. Uh, this is not just the flu. Uh, if you look at the flu, the, the, if you look at the infectious fatality rate, the IFR of the flu, the generally that's about, you know, less 0.1 or 0.2, right? So that means one person out of a thousand dies or two people out of a thousand die. There's differences in different populations. We don't fully understand that. And because we're not testing everybody, we don't know the full proportion of patients who are tested. So we don't know the true denominator, but when we do get a true measure of the denominator, the infectious fatality rate is probably, I think it's still less than one, but it's probably closer to 0.8 to 0.9. And in the people over the age of 60, it's much higher than that. So over 60 to 80, it probably the infectious fatality rate probably goes up to about 2%. So 20 out of 1,000 and over 80, I think it goes up even higher. It could be 5% to 10%. Again, we'll understand that more as we do more testing, um, but it, this is not your common flu um, and, and we can't treat it that way. Thank you so much, Dr. Feber. And I think, you know, going on and talking about how this influenza is evolving, it's, it's causing a lot of changes within the space of how we're conducting care and, and doing it through remote monitoring and, and through new technologies. And so, you know, Rusty, I was hoping you could speak to a little bit of, of the transformations that you're seeing in the industry as um, this, this evolves and, and what's going on in, in, you know, in that space from trends that you're seeing. You're on mute, Rusty, just as an FYI. <laughs> yeah, so first I'll talk about our ability to adopt remote technologies effectively. No, um, first I'll actually talk about uh, transformation a little closer to home, which is at NextGen. Um, you know, as we started to see this, we really looked at three things. One was the transmission rate, one was the incubation period, and one was the global reach of the geography. And so we started really, end of January, started really 
starting to lay in plans, look at scalability of remote technology. Um, started as we moved into late February or mid, mid to late February, we started having daily standups and we started testing having large swaths of the company at home, especially around critical business processes that are necessary for our clients. Because frankly, you know, when you think about number one, providing software that is supporting the process of care, when you think about the back end of healthcare around eligibility and claims, this stuff still must continue to go on to enable the front lines to really truly engage with this virus. And so, you know, we, we really rallied around three things. The first was employee safety, and that's first and paramount. And so, you know, as of the 16th of March, we had 15 people in office across 13 different offices working and, and out of 2,700, right? So we lifted and shifted the entire employee base and frankly, just gratitude all around to, to, the, to the folks across the organization who really have been galvanized and aligned in battling this. Um, but then the second priority was really business continuity, back to what I said, right? The process of care must continue to be scalable and accessible and, uh, and effective. Otherwise, we're, we're, we're fighting this virus with one hand behind our back, right? And so, so then business continuity became very important, right? Making sure that our clients could depend on us to provide the services that enabled them to focus on caring for the population. And then from there, it's really been about how do we enable our clients? Because our clients are going through some, the, the, the healthcare provider is going through a tremendous challenge right now. On one hand, you've got folks that are girding for battle. You know, I look at, for example, our federally qualified health center clients, right? This is the front line of care for a disadvantaged population that frankly doesn't have the economics to simply shelter in place. And so on one hand, we are focused on making sure, and I'm sure all of our other uh, uh, vendors across our space are, in making sure that the clients can actually provide care, right? Now on the other side, you have clients um, like orthopedics, right? Where basically their entire theater of operation has just been diverted for high acuity, for high acuity beds. And so for them, it's more, how do they continue to keep in touch with their patients? Frankly, some of them have just taken a vacation for a while to focus on their employee safety, because frankly, there's not that much work to do right now. Now that's gonna come back on the back end as well, right? And there's gonna be pent up demand there. So we are really now starting to, the first thing was belts and suspenders. Make sure we have safe employees, make sure that we can operate and support our clients. Once we got through that, now it's about how do we really start to be part of the solution as we move forward through as this evolves. Now for us, um, you know, one of the great things that I think we've been able to help with our clients on is virtual visits and telehealth. And so we've, we've really seen um, a, a massive pivot of patient visits going from in-person to telehealth. Certainly, if you look across the country, there's different approaches now starting to emerge around reimbursement, which gives uh, the provider community confidence that, frankly, they can pay their bills, feed their families while they're treating, treating folks. Um, and so we've seen, we've seen a significant migration to that. And it's interesting, you know, I mean, even from an employee-based standpoint, remote work has always been something that people very much are, are, want to do. But sometimes organizations struggle with the discipline to move that much remotely. We're now at a time when all of a sudden 
all of the noise in our lives has kind of vanished. And we're at a time when, when there's purpose-driven alignment among the population. There's ga- the, the, uh, the employee base is galvanized because we are in healthcare, because we can be part of the solution. We can help solve this problem, which enables kind of a positive, can-do attitude around making remote collaboration work that didn't exist before, right? And you're seeing the same thing, I think, in healthcare, where you're starting to see people, first of all, as healthcare becomes more of a constrained resource, all of a sudden, everybody starts to appreciate it a whole lot more, right? You know, all of a sudden, you fill your prescriptions, and you actually take the medication, you know? You maybe, you know, you start to take that seriously. And so, patient engagement all of a sudden goes from that thing you did every once in a while when your back was against the wall to something you're now proactively looking at. How do I keep myself healthy? How do I keep my family healthy? What are the things I can do? And so this is, I think we're actually at the frontier of a real pivot in, in healthcare in the United States and frankly across the globe because nothing becomes as valuable until you don't have it. And People are now having to face that very reality and having to face concepts like the limited number of ICU beds, having to face the concept that our critical care clinical staff, both nursing as well as physicians, tend to be in the higher risk populations. So there's a whole bunch of frontline workers out there who actually are putting themselves more at risk than maybe the average population at the front line. And so, you know, there's, there's just, there's a lot to this. Our goal right now is just focus on helping providers, keeping people safe, keeping business continuity. We evaluate the situation on a day by day basis. We communicate with town halls to our clock, to our employees every week. We put out customer messages consistently. It's just trying to keep everybody informed, calm. Don't bury your head in the sand. Don't run around thinking the sky is falling. It's generally somewhere in the middle. And if we all just focus, we're going to be fine. And that's kind of our message. You know, Rusty, I think you, you said it very well. I think that we're going through a transformational age, both in how the workforce is doing, but also how healthcare is going to be performed. And before we unpack that further down the line, I, you know, I, I think I'm going to turn it over to Will. And, and Will, if you can speak to a little bit the issues that uh, Rusty is talking to in regards of, of how do you, how are you managing this, this transformational time and, and supporting the front line, but also supporting those who are not on the front line that are in the background supporting those and making sure that they're getting access to what they need and, and at the best and most qualified information. Yeah. Well, I, I had a, I had obviously a very connected resource with my brother early on this and, uh, and the work he was doing. So as a company about three weeks ago, we just kind of went into work from home. We're fairly virtual and we're not as large as next gen or Illumina for sure. Um, and we, you know, I, I think, you know, working from home is great until you have to, um, so what we've instituted, I do a, every two weeks, I do a call with everybody in the company and we, it's mostly a monologue cause those don't, you know, it's really hard to ask questions in that atmosphere and I don't need to hear myself speak, but I do I try to share what other people have shared with me within the company and also outside the company as a public company, we hear from the bankers, we hear from individual investors. Um, and obviously we all have friends and family, um, our, our, you know, the, the, 
the nervousness is offset by being really busy, which thank goodness we're busy. Um, cause that is the best way to not get freaked out. Um, and also there's some excitement in that we can be part of the solution. As, as Rusty said, you know, we connect to about half the ambulatory setting through our partners like NextGen and others. And so I would say from, from my perspective, one of my frustrations was always everything takes 18 to 24 months to do anything. And that's what everyone tells you in the industry. And I'm not an HIT person, so I have trouble, and I'm more of an entrepreneur and an optimist, so I have trouble accepting those numbers. Um, but what, and, and I understand why they are, of course, now that I've gotten into the weeds, but I do think we're gonna have accelerated adoption of best practices. And um, I do think there are, a lot of our partners um, are set up for those really well. And, you know, our, our focus is how to, how to bring adherence and affordability into the life of the patient. And I think the, you know, what's fascinating to me is, is adherence. It, it's, it's like, it's behavioral science through and through. And um, I think technology can enable it. I think this has, as Rusty said, and, and Phil said, we're, we're all more cognizant this isn't just the flu. I think people are really getting that. Um, we already have people who have been infected by this. We know someone whose parents died, you know, so it's, it's in the household. Um, and so our, our role really is to figure out how to get the technology to as many people as possible, not really thinking about the commercial application, but how do you just get it used? Because obviously there's, the world is global, it's connected. And uh, we all use some form of device, which isn't really compromised. The device, the infrastructure around the device, the communication, that isn't the problem here. The problem is us just being outside and spreading germs. And so I think that um, uh, while it's, it's very serious and we obviously watch it as a, as a company, we watch out for our team and our clients, um, we have the ability to really help communication flow in a way that we've been ready for for a while, but I think now the market's catching up and the consumerism that's going to come out of this, just the power of the patient uh, is, is terrific. I, I will say I'm very nervous for the providers. Uh, you know, it's, they are the front line. They were already overworked. They're already being asked to use too much technology, which slows down the clinical, you know, brilliance that they go into it for. They didn't go to med school to be on a computer. So I do think we'll have that challenge to get rid of some of the noise, get things interoperable and share data to learn. Um, I, do, I do have a question for Phil around the diagnostic piece. I think a lot of people, you know, if you haven't had exposure to the academic setting, you, you hear diagnostic and you just think lab, you know, Quest and LabCorp. But if you're a patient, like right now, where do I go? You know, how do I go get a test? Like, what's the real world test application? Do you wait until you feel bad? Do you do it proactively to avoid pass? I'm just a, just a very practical question, but that's from my perspective. That's what we're leaning in on is just to try to get um, technology used by people and less focused on necessarily the revenue application of that and just the use of it. We want people to use the technology. I can certainly jump in on the diagnostic and there's also a question uh, about the kind of balance between what proportion are, you know, of these tests are, you know, initiated by healthcare providers in hospitals versus ambulatory and office based settings. And 
you know, it, there's not one answer to that across the United States and a lot has to do with testing capacity. So I think the East Coast has been much more rapid in, in ramping up testing capacity. Um, and uh, the discussions I've had with physicians there is that they are taking a risk-based approach. So, you know, I'd say four weeks ago, you would have had to have been traveling to some of these areas or known exposure to someone who was confirmed to have COVID and have symptoms to get tested. I think that's evolved to the point where you have to have symptoms and have some uh, risk of exposure. In California, we're in such a kind of dire straits as far as testing right now, uh, the public health saying, look, unless you're in the hospital or a healthcare worker, you're not going to, you know, you may not get access to testing right now because we have to make sure that, to your point, Will, the healthcare workers, we're helping to monitor them because they are in harm's way and we have to understand if they get infected and so we can take care of the healthcare workers. And we have to really understand of who's in the hospital, who's infected, who's not, so we can take the appropriate actions. Um, we're running out of personal protection equipment. Um, you know, we are uh, not in the same dire straits yet as far as our intensive care units on the West Coast as New York is right now, because they're, you know, either ahead of us or just have, you know, sustained community transmission to a greater degree than we had before we went into active suppression. Um, and so I would say primarily people need to work through their doctors to get tested. And if you have symptoms, your doctors want to hear about those symptoms, and they're also going to hear about your risk to exposure to someone COVID-19. And they're going to, you know, use their best judgment and guidance from the CDC in making a recommendation whether you seek a test or not. Um, there's no risk. There's no. There's still risk in seeking out a test, right? It's an. They have to take a nasal swab. You're putting another individual at risk as you get that sample. So. You know, it's not as easy as everybody who wants should get tested. We're not there. I do believe, though, as testing gets ramped up, that threshold of risk and symptoms will come down uh, over the next two to four weeks so that it will get progressively more and more people will have access to the testing and get that testing. But people should go through their healthcare provider or a healthcare provider to do that. Thank you, Dr. Pepper. And, you know, I think what we've heard is there's a national emergency. And in that national emergency, there has been a lowering of restrictions and uh, guidelines that used to make things very restrictive in operating in business. Now, Rusty, in, in your world, how has, what have you seen by the changes in the symptoms and on, on possibly loosening of what would we consider regulatory or historic, you know, as, as Will spoke to, 18 to 24 months ability to, to conduct business quickly? And so what have you been seeing? Yeah, let's say... Um sometimes uh, regulations fall to uh, to urgency. And so, you know, I look, um, you know, if you look at uh, what Governor Hogan has done in Maryland, right, and he's actually come out and been very vocal about relaxing uh, credentialing regulations, um, looking at people with expired licenses, right? I mean, this is, this is really right now, this is all about all, all about really just focusing on the solution and frankly, figuring the rest of it out later. And I think we're starting to see more and more energy of that. I, I think you're gonna, once again, I mean, I think you think about the prevalence of telehealth now, and especially if you live in a state where you're under-resourced from a provider standpoint against the, the population condition, um, all of a sudden that cross state line cons consult starts to look a lot better than no consult at all, right? And so look, I think I think we're gonna come out, once again, I think 
we're not ready to really decide. We're not, we're not ready to make a decision yet on what we think the after looks like. We try to model it. You know, we model three months, six months, nine months as the bottom and really try to figure out, frankly, just from our business continuity and all that, how do we make sure that we're, we're coming out of the back end of this with the capability to continue to help transform care? Because I think, I, I think to the point, I think, I think so many of the things that we were just facing that were intractable societal adoption problems or inhibitors to change have just shown themselves to be such crazy luxuries of an era that may never exist again, right? And I mean, it doesn't mean that the world's going to change radically on the back end of this, but what it does mean is, is that a lot of the roadblocks to care are not going to be acceptable to society anymore. That's right. Totally agree. That's that power of the consumer, the patient, and I think power of the provider. I mean, I, I think when you, you know, you know, you're on the front line, your voice just got a lot louder, you know, with the population. We listen. You know, okay. Maybe the politicians don't because they forget quickly, don't want to go there, but I think the population does not. And so um, I, I actually think, uh, I mean, we need to get through it, but I think there's going to be a lot of positive out of that. To, uh, we, to, we were talking about it beforehand, right? I mean, I was talking about my grandmother um, who passed yeah. a few years ago, and she she lived through the depression. And in spite of the fact that she lived in the in the hills above Brentwood in Los Angeles, and in, in near, not too far from where Arnold Schwarzenegger lived, she'd go to Starbucks every morning with an empty water bottle and fill it up with milk and bring it back to her house, yeah. right? And I mean, the societal imprint of something that when things go from normal with a future to completely turned upside down, doesn't go away. And so look, I, I, you know, I tell my team, I said, look, you know, we're in the lemonade business right now because we're getting a ton of lemons. Yeah. And so all we're trying to think about now is how do we make lemonade out of those lemons? Right. Um, you know, one, one could look at it the other way, which is if this had been this, this could, this could be a much more deadly, disease than it is with a long incubation period. And, you know, I mean, so I kind of look at it, this is a terrible situation. And frankly, it's one that gives us the opportunity to make sure it doesn't happen again um, without maybe being as bad as it could be. So, you know, back to making lemonade. Yeah, I guess I'd like to challenge us a little bit on this. Um, so one of the historical realities I'm looking at as I think about um, the Spanish flu in 1918, as I think about H1N1, as I think about SARS, um, as I think about the HIV, uh, which is a, a pandemic, which is still considered a pandemic by yeah. the WHO. You know, you do get this incredible um, alignment of effort and engagement. You know, the human race is an unbelievable in addressing challenges like COVID-19. And, and we do throw incredible in, innovative and ingenuity to add it. And we will hear and we'll get through this in a way that we've never gotten through it before because of a lot of the innovations of remote health and integrations, electronic, our compute power, our connectedness. But at the same time, when we get through this, there's going to be kind of uh, a, a movement to go back to status quo. Yeah. And so how do we, how can we be effectively? So like, you know, from my perspective, you know, w this is a, a wake up call. It's, there's, we, we don't need novel technology to solve and prevent what just happened and, and to put us in it. We have the technology, we have the capabilities, we have the companies that can support that. 
it's really about kind of international resolve and fortitude to focus on implementing those sustainable processes that put us in a fundamentally different place after this than we were before in a in in a, you know we can't can't boil the ocean and a few critical elements and so how do we define those critical elements and really um, make sure we do end up in a different place yeah that's a good question i mean rusty you probably have a perspective around i mean you know when in industries go through these big shifts this is people but if you just think of like the financial meltdown in 08 all of a sudden you know every financial institution has a quarterly audit against uh, their balance sheet right there's now that's numbers and it's you know pretty easy to do because they're businesses and they took money from the government but if you think about the hospital systems and the ambulatory setting rest there's a way to have a you know a compliance above it that just says yes we deem you pandemic ready which means you've got the supplies you've got the technology you know is that or is that you know is that going to be yet another regulation that people say oh my gosh and now it's 36 months to get something done um I don't know. What do you think? It's a tough one. It's a good question. It's a tough one. You know, I mean, look, I'm, I'm a big believer in practicality and the perfect being the enemy of the good. Right. And so, you know, I mean, look, I got quoted in a, in an article in fortune magazine on death by a thousand paper cuts, which was really talking about the meaningful use impact on the healthcare industry. Right. And frankly, I, I ascribed, I ascribed responsibility to both the government and the vendor pool. Um, I mean, the reality is, is that the process of care is very important. And the process of care is important both for health, but also for well-being. And well-being drives health. And when you have real engagement with your provider, and you're really actually, you feel that that person is understanding your challenges and is applying not just a decision tree on a computer, but actually the benefit of their experience, you know, that's when, that, that's the experience that everybody wants. Unfortunately, in an effort to try and fix everything at once, we've overloaded it. You know, I mean, I'm an I'm a engineer, right? So Heisenberg's uncertainty principle in physics basically says, simply by measuring a system, you affect the system you measure. You gotta be really careful about measurement. And so I'm hopeful that, that first of all, we continue to drive interoperability. Yep. Right? Interoperability step one, Right, because uh, and 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 that to me is 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 something that should continue to drive. But some of the regulatory overlay that is taking providers away from providing scalable and effective and quality care, and frankly, taking the care decisions out of the hands of the frontline provider who's sitting in front of the patient, I don't think that can continue. And I think this is going to force a level of scalability into the system where all of that luxury stuff kind of gets thrown out. Now the question is. Is it a foot in a bucket of water, right? To Phil's very good point, right? Yeah. You put your foot in the bucket of water, the water rises. You pull your foot out, you can never tell your foot was in there, yeah. right? And so do things kind of bounce back to the old way or does an engaged, <coughs> does an engaged consumer base say enough is enough and we're truly going to use the power of our checkbook because now we're in high deductible health plans to go to where the experience and the care is what we expect. I don't know. It's, I, I, I'm hopeful that this is a catalyst to providing accessible, effective, high quality care, much more broadly and scalably to the population. But also, I mean, look, if you look at what's happened in China, um, part of what China has is they've got a centrally managed 
infrastructure that can tell where everybody is or nearly and who they've been with, can read your temperature remotely. You know, they have an ability to implement something that is well beyond, frankly, what we can do. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that we want that either. You're right. Right. Um, but so then it's up to us. How do we create the healthcare system we want in the society we want? Yeah. yeah without the intrusion, you don't want. Yeah. No, it's right. tricky. But Rusty, I think your comments about, you know, during this setting, because so much of care is now being shifted to telemedicine, mm -hmm. that's going to, it is a forcing function for, you know, a proportion of the population was like, no, I really want to go in and see my doctor or my healthcare provider. And you'll shift to telemedicine and they'll have an experience. And I would expect a good proportion of that is like, you know, actually this works quite well. And I don't really miss driving and having trouble parking and having to deal with bad, crappy you know, <laughs> health, health food. Wait in the big campus. room and then wait in the little room. And, <laughs> and, and, and wait with people are sneezing and coughing all over me. Like, you know, this could, people could be like, no, this works just fine. So I do think that's a place where we could see a fundamental shift, whereas before it was more the early adopters, the tech savvy, probably 10 to 15% are like, yeah, I'm fine doing this over video conference. And I think that's true for employers. I think it's going to have impact on employers and the way employers look at it. I think it's going to have impact, the sustained impact on the travel industry because people okay. are like, hey, hey, this does work pretty well now. And I don't need to shake your hand and we can have a great productive meeting. Um, and I think for healthcare engagement too, it's a real opportunity if we shore this up and, and I think right now rally to say, okay, this pandemic creates a challenge. So you do have to see your doctor from your, from your house, but you know, let's be all in on that and show how that actually makes a lot of sense. And that could be actually a sustained solution moving forward. I, I'd actually argue that if you can distribute care out to the home, I mean, certainly the IoT world has worked on putting out, you know, edge device monitoring and, and capabilities and frankly, edge device triage capabilities, right? And so you start to unbundle what a visit really looks like. And I actually think what you're looking at is, is I, I do believe, look, our, our, we've, we've had a number of providers come onto this in the last three weeks, as you can imagine, right? the average patient satisfaction is in the mid nines. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's to your very good point. I don't think it's going back. I mean, you know, who wants, who wants to drive somewhere when it can just happen in your living room? I mean, naturally I'm getting a little tired of being on video myself because about 12 hours <laughs> a day, seven days a week. But, but, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I do, I, I see when you shift, when you make the value creation transaction in healthcare that much more efficient and that much more satisfying, there's no way it can't change the industry. Yeah, agreed. agreed. And I think to that point, um, you know, we are open for questions, but I think the question that um, is on many of our minds is how is we and the organizations that we work for, how are we stepping up to support the frontline and the healthcare system at a time that, as you're saying, regulations are going away, the way that we conducted business is vastly different. The way that they're conducting business on the front lines is very different due to the urgency. There's, as I said, the, you know, as a pandemic, everything is an emergency. So there is a very different way of operating. There isn't a strategy or long-term processes because everything is changing daily. So how do we back here look at our the businesses that we're in and, and, and how they're going to support that front line? Because the truth is it's great to have technology. 
But the truth is, it's the people that are at the front lines that are delivering this care to make sure that we can get through this. So what would you say to that? Well, we, we all have probably a different way of doing that. Um, we, we, about two weeks ago, did two things. We tried, we basically took the CDC link and integrated it into the workflow of all our partners. And, you know, they will see that. Will they click on it? You know, we're, we're seeing them use it. Um, it took us about six hours to get that out to, you know, the, half the ambulatory population. So um, that's a way of using um, the platform Obviously, that's not commercial in any way. That's just trying to get information. Um, and on the patient side, we were able to get together a very simple patient engagement text platform offering for patients to get real-time updates from the CDC. Um, but I think ultimately for the industry, um, we, we are really trying to just listen to our clients. Uh, our clients with the amount of specialty medications coming to market um, they obviously their, their reps, their sales reps are no longer calling the sales conferences, the medical conferences are being canceled. And in our industry, people spend the whole previous year generating content, which is effective and really clinical by nature. A lot of the, the fluff is gone. It's really clinical. And right now they have no way to distribute that. Um, and that is important information to the education of introduction of new medication. So we're, we're focused on helping there. We did a couple things, you know, that we just trying to help, but, um, uh, you know, the, the, the key for us is trying to use the scale we have to help. And, um, by the way, we were, you know, I know some of our other partners are probably listening. We're open to any ideas. We, we you know, we're, we're happy to be the, uh, conduit to help and, and not worry about the revenue aspect of it. I guess from our from our side, a um, bunch of things. Uh, we've, you know, establishing business continuity quickly was really important because we're now we've been we've, we it, we are continuing to migrate clients from on premise to hosted, for example, because they're trying to quickly get servers out of their office. We're doing that. Uh, we we had a client get a ransomware attack. We were able to quickly get in there and help them. We're bringing we're bringing clients up on um, virtual visits on telehealth in a matter of days. Um, and so, you know, and, and frankly, we're seeing clients start with 30 and go to 150 providers, right? Um, so we continue to do that. But on top of that, then I have, I, you know, we have a relatively significant, um, nothing like Illumina, but cadre of folks that actually went to medical school, unlike me, I'm just an engineer. And, um, and, and so, you know, we're also starting to put out information to our clients as well as our employees. Um, we're starting to get ahead and I've got a team that's now focused on collecting government regulations as, and, and making sure we're putting a digest together for clients, um, not advising them, but pointing them in the direction um, for some of the government stimulus programs that are coming out. Um, on top of that, you know, I mean, we, for an employee to go on site, that employee actually has to explicitly agree to go on site. It has to be business critical. We have a conversation with them to make sure that they are comfortable with it. But we also are being very diligent about when we have to go and really do something on site that perpetuates care. We do that as well, right? And so, you know, uh, the biggest thing for us though is just making sure, I mean, do you think about it, right? A lot of the Backend transaction processing for healthcare actually occurs in other countries. And those countries are under a significant amount of pressure as well. I mean, you think about what Modi's done in India with 1.3 billion people under lockdown, right? Um, 
We have every single employee that we have in India has a laptop and a universal power supply and a cell phone hotspot. We did that about three and a half weeks ago. They're all working remotely, but there there are some of our partners that are under pressure right now, and we're having to sh we're shifting work back into our stateside resources. So, you know, it's it's honestly at this point in time, um, we've really focused on care continuity. Um, we'll let the numbers kind of work themselves out as we get further down the road. But you know, I mean, we're we're, we're feeling we, we feel like what do you think? we're fully there to support them at this point in time, and we feel good about that. Great. And Dr. Fabo, is there anything that you would add from Illumina in, in terms of what, you know, where your focus is right now to support the front lines? But we might yeah, have so, you know, no, I'm still here. Um, so a couple things. First of all, Rusty, rest assured, we have many more engineers at Illumina than we do at uh, MDs. Um, you know, I, uh, we, we may have a more more than uh, next gen, but uh, you guys used to uh, you guys used to hire people when I ran Pixis from me. So yes, no, I'm familiar <laughs> with this idea. <laughs> um, yeah, and and I and I I have a follow up question, but you know I, I and and it gets to where we have to go, and you know obviously it, we touched upon it. Um, China has a distinctly different culture with respect to uh, personal autonomy and privacy than we do in the United States. And then many, um, certainly much more so than uh, more than I think about the EU and it's a patchwork, right? Um, but whenever you have a public health crisis, it's a balance between the good of the public health and the autonomy and privacy of the individual. And I do wonder as we move toward out of this, is there, you know, just like we had the, 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 the laws uh, that came out of the 9-11 tragedy and, and terrorists where we did compromise some of our personal freedom uh, for the sake of anti-terrorism, do we find a way to compromise some of our personal autonomy and privacy for the sake of preventing this happening again. And it's a delicate balance. And I'm certainly not, uh, I have no answers now, but it's a dialogue we're going to have to have. And I think, Will, as I think about uh, what you do, um, and we talked about compliance, you know, if you look at take COVID-19, like, you know, the other people at risk for disease are those with diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, and you imagine if those people were compliant, could they have been at less risk if they were actually taking the prescriptions and actually managing their blood pressure and managing um, the, the side effects? Would they be at less risk? I don't know, but you know, I think the healthier you are, the more likely your body's gonna tolerate the infection and you'll get through this without needing the intensive care units that are about to be overwhelmed. So like from my perspective, moving forward, I think we absolutely need a much more proactive infectious disease surveillance that's global, that's real time, that doesn't compromise individuals because you're not communicating anybody's genome, you're just communicating the bugs you're identifying. And you can imagine what I'm working with the Gates Foundation and the World Economic Forum and the Broad and you, you name it, Sanger Institute, Africa CDC, so we want to get to basically a, a Google Maps of infections that's real time that we can see things pop up, whether it's West Nile virus in Africa or, uh, you know, a coronavirus coming from a camel in the Middle East. You know, we want to know that in real time so that we can contain that. In the same way, how do we think about, you know, carrying on? How do you work on compliance? How do you make sure you have that sustainable um, telemedicine 
so that you know we can safely raise awareness when people get sick and and physicians can can participate safely and proactively yeah now it's a great question and uh we will we will be focused on it thank you and I, think so we're we're, I think we're, we're running, running up on, up on time. time. Yeah. We are, but what I'd like to do is, I, you know, because Rusty, I know you have to jump first. I'd like you guys to leave you with any last thoughts or comments to the audience who's paying attention in regards to this. Any last comments or thoughts to sort of summarize where we are and, and, and where you want to go. Rusty? Yeah, I guess, you know, for me, first thing is, is we all have actually a personal responsibility as citizens of this planet to actually take this seriously and 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 frankly follow the guidelines of the cdc and your common sense so i mean that's that's the first one pass the message on everybody needs to hear the darn message um but look from our standpoint um like i said uh we we're in the lemonade business now right this is a terrible terrible event so let's make sure we squeeze as much good out of it as we can by frankly knocking down some of these barriers i mean i look at an, enter an, uh, an enterprise master patient index for a patient. I mean, oh my gosh, we're so worried about somebody finding out that we had that uh, finding out who we are because we have a national ID. And yet every large tech stack already knows so much more than anybody would ever know because of that ID. Right. And so let's, let's, let, let's just start doing some practical things that allow us to link the information together that we've worked so hard and frankly, sometimes painfully to curate and let's actually get to what, what, what uh, Phil's saying, which is really getting to a real-time surveillance capability where we can actually intervene in a much more systematic way at a much earlier time before this thing becomes the, becomes the, the, the pandemic math. Beautiful. Dr. Febo, last thoughts? Yeah, I guess just uh, kind of bring it down to a personal note. You know, a lot of us are figuring out how can we, uh, you know, prevent ourselves and our families from uh, getting in infected with uh, this coronavirus. I think the best way to do that and the best responsibility a call can take is just treat ourselves like we are infected and and try because right now it's really about reducing the spread to 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 suppress this. And as we pull out of that, I, I agree with Rusty and, and Will's earlier comments. Uh, we have to say how how can we behave differently after this to decrease the risk of pandemics in the future and decrease the impact on the health of every individual of these outbreaks. Very well said. Will? You know, I just, I would encourage everyone to, you know, the, the likelihood of Phil, Rusty, and I being on a video conference from uh, either our guest room or study or <laughs> uh, a month ago just wouldn't have happened, right? And I'm a big believer in sharing wisdom. And, you know, so I would just, anyone listening, please duplicate this, do it in any way you can. And I, I do like the idea of assuming you have it. I, I hadn't thought you feel you're very creative. That that is a great way to do it, because then you're in, you're you're on the line, and you'll be more responsible as a result. But um, anyway, I thank you guys for taking time. I know everyone's really busy and stressed out, and um, really appreciate. It. Good okay. to see you guys. Thanks for putting it together, and appreciate it. And great to meet you, Phil. And I'll yep, see nice you later. Rusty. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Yep. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks, great work. Thank you, Rusty. Myra, do you want to wrap up and let the audience know what comes next? 
Absolutely. So we want to take this opportunity to thank you, Rebecca, Rusty, Dr. Febo, and Will. We appreciate you taking the time today. And we're also looking forward to next week's webinar, Learning Together, the Transformational Nature of COVID-19 on the Healthcare Industry. Again, thanks everyone for joining us. Feel free to reach out at any time with questions to, um, at webinars at OptimizerX.com. We'll be happy to direct your questions to the appropriate party within our team. Thanks again for joining us and have a great rest of your day.